Hello out there, welcome to episode 143 of the Love It Album podcast. My name's Morris. Thank you so much for joining us. Back in 2020, I did a show with a number of my fellow podcasters from the Pantheon Podcast Network, of which Love That Album and See Here are both affiliated with. And I asked them all to talk for a few minutes each about what their favorite live albums were. And I had a real ton of fun doing that. I never got round to recording what my own thoughts were about a favorite live album for that episode. I always meant to come around and maybe do a few for myself. But when it comes down to it, I'd say that Chris Wilson's Live at the Continental, recorded in 1994, so 27 years ago, is, if not my very favorite live album, then probably within the top three. Earlier on this year, Cheer Squad Records, which is a local record label, re-released the album with a bunch of bonus tracks, both on CD and on vinyl for the first time ever, so that ought to keep the record fans pleased. It's not often that I'm going to double dip, but this was one case where it was absolutely essential. We have like a whole CD's worth of material that didn't previously appear. Now, if you've listened to Love That Album before or See Here before, you'd know what a huge fan I am of Chris Wilson and this album. About three years ago, Chris came onto this very podcast to talk about his album Landlocked, which came out one year before live at the Continental and we celebrated I think what was the 25th anniversary of Landlocked and also a few years before that we had local filmmaker Chris Franklin come on and talk about a documentary that he'd made about live at the Continental and about the working relationship between Chris Wilson and his longtime guitar player Shane O'Mara. Sadly back in 2019 we lost Chris Wilson to cancer a huge blow for the Melbourne music and the Australian music community. Anyone who ever went to see Chris Wilson perform live always knew that he put in absolutely everything into the show. It didn't matter whether it was just him and a guitar or with a full band, whether he was playing in front of thousands of people or whether there was just a room of five. And I'd seen him in big crowded rooms and in very small attended rooms. He always put in a great show. Overseeing the re-release of Live at the Continental is his wife, Sarah Carroll. Now, Sarah is an incredibly talented songwriter and musician in her own right. I'm super privileged that she agreed to come onto the podcast, and we had a rather lengthy conversation, not just about Live at the Continental, but about Chris's other work, and a good chunk about her own work as a songwriter and performer. We cover so many subjects, and I really hope that you enjoy this conversation. There are some music clips in there, so if you've not heard Chris before, or you've not heard Sarah before, then this will be your opportunity to really get into the music. And there'll be details in the show notes as to how you can order any of the albums, particularly Live at the Continental or Sarah Carroll and the Left Wing's Star Parade albums. So at this stage, Joanne will talk about the contact details, and then we'll come right back with my interview with Sarah Carroll. And I'll be back again at the end of the show to talk about what is happening for episode 144, next month's episode of Love That Album. I got a dusty old pile of vinyl records sitting on my floor. We hope you're enjoying the show. You can find previous episodes at lovethatalbumpodcast.blogspot.com or you can get it along with any of the other great music discussion shows at rockandrollarchaeology.com, all part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. To keep up to date, subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify or your podcast app of choice. You can email Morris with feedback or album suggestions at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. 
join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash love that album and start a music related discussion. Well, nobody said that showbiz would be easy She threw her wedding curlers in the sink Ripped off a pistis and kicked off her high heels She slumped in a chair and poured herself a drink Welcome back to episode 143 of Love That Album Podcast and I have on a Skype connection singer, songwriter, musician, I've just found out, music teacher, music educator, the wonderful Sarah Carroll. Welcome to Love That Album, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm wrapped to be here. Oh, we're wrapped to have you here. I'm, I'm feeling a little bit poor because I think I said to you a couple of years ago, geez, I need to get you onto the podcast to talk about Star Parade. And uh, we are definitely going to get to that in this show. But I wanted to say, first of all, congratulations on the re-release of Chris's album, Live at the Continental. It's hard to believe that it's been 27 years since the original album came out. And as a lot of scribes have gone and written about it, it's an album that has so many fans in Australia. It's uh, that, and, and it's a live album to boot. I mean, I know a lot of great studio albums, but I think it's that rare live album that has a lot of cachet, I should say, in this country. And it's something that's musically very different to what had come out before. He'd done what I sort of thought were those great Captain Beefheart style albums with a crown of thorns. And three years ago, I spoke with Chris about Landlocked, which had come out the year before. But uh, Live at the Continental was something that just really took over the public consciousness like nothing else that I can remember. So I wanted to ask you, this story has been told quite a lot of times, but for people outside of Australia who might not know who Chris is, what was the story about getting this live album recorded? I mean, I know that Shane and Jex, the two other musicians who appear on the album, Shane Amara and Jex Saralat, had gone and said they had no idea that this was going to be recorded as an album. So what were the origins as you recall it? Well, Chris had had a break from playing for quite a while because both his mother and father got very ill and he was uh, nursing both of them at home, at their family home in Alfington. So this album, or this show, was the first one he'd done for, I think it was about six months, I could be wrong about that. But yeah, it had been a while sort of getting to the point where he felt able to do it. And then once he decided that he was going to do it, he was really excited about it. And it was a very special occasion for all those reasons. And um, Shane and Jex, uh, Chris had been gigging with Shane a fair bit. They'd been in an incarnation of the Crown of Thorns, which was basically the studio band for Landlocked. And he'd been playing with them quite a bit through 1992 and 93 until such time as he had to stop because of his mum and dad's health. And so when the Conti show started to get put together, they were approached, I think, by um, Live at the Wireless 
and they wanted to broadcast part of the show. And so they set up to record the whole thing. And as Shane and Jex remember it, they noticed the OB van outside the venue when they were loading in and stuff and said to Chris something like, you know, oh, what's happening? These triple uh, double J guys are here or whatever. And Chris has said, oh, yeah, they're just going to do like a radio kind of broadcast of it and, and record it for that. So nothing more was said about it. Nothing more was thought about it. And then after the night happened, Chris was contacted by Chris Thompson, who had made the recording, who was an ABC sound engineer. And Chris Thompson said to Chris, you better come in and have a listen to this. And then, and he did. And then from that point, things started to move on it because Chris realized that it, the, the recording was A, beautifully done and, you know, nothing had gone wrong. There hadn't been a hitch in the actual technical aspect, which is rare. Mm-hmm. And B, that the performance that had been recorded was probably one of the best of his career. And so I'm not sure who approached who or who asked who, but Mushroom did end up releasing the album, although it wasn't sort of a Mushroom record per se. I think Mushroom at the time saw it as a kind of an interim sort of a release in between Chris's two studio albums because he had he had uh, The Long Weekend sort of in, um, you know, he was writing for that at that mm-hmm. time. And so, yeah, it was put out almost as a kind of, oh, well, we'll just bung this out. And, you know, it was a fairly low budget release, you know, as you might recall, fairly low key kind of packaging and so forth. No big deal made about it. And people began to notice it. And um, it actually ended up being probably the best selling album that Chris ever released, you know. I was overseas the year that Short Cool Ones had been released, his album with Diesel. Uh, And then when I came back, a friend who I worked with had said to me, oh, man, while you were overseas, did you hear about Chris's album with Diesel? I said, no, what's this? He said, oh, just a great album of uh, uh, blues covers. And it got to number one on the charts. It's fantastic. So it was, and I thought, really? Fantastic. Well, I was standing at my window. I don't normally like to sort of talk about things in terms of numbers, but was Live of the Continental and Short Cool Ones, were they similar in the number of CDs sold? Were different people buying those? Uh, yes, definitely different people, although there was crossover, of course. The fact that Deezer was involved in Short Cool Ones made a big difference to the way that album was treated and the way that it was marketed and the way that it was promoted, yeah. Mm. So um, while Live at the Continental, I think, has gone on to have the same enduring appeal, it certainly didn't receive the same amount of attention from the record company at the time of release. And so, no, it took a long time for it to reach the sort of the status that it enjoys now. And having been re-released, the vinyl issue particularly sold really, really well in the first couple of weeks of release. It went to number one in various charts in Australia and so that was very gratifying because, yeah, you know, at the time of release, as I say, it was um, it was a fairly low-key kind of affair, whereas Short Cool Ones was much more obviously uh, promoted and, and, um, and was much more visible for that reason. So what was Chris's relationship like with Mushroom or Aurora Records, the offshoot label that Mushroom released it on? And I, I guess this is even a more pertinent question now, considering that the music community here are still sort of grieving the past 
passing of uh, Michael Gudinski in the last couple of weeks. Did Chris ever have conversations with Michael? Was Aurora a good record company for Chris? Yeah, Aurora was a, a sort of a boutique offshoot of Mushroom, and so it was. He was dealt with there by a smaller group. We used to call them the White Witches because it was a sort of a White Records imprint, and so there were uh, really sort of three women involved. In um, it was Eleanor McKay, Rachel Willoughby, and uh, Linda Besides. I remember have had a lot to do with Chris around that time. She was doing. Uh, she was working in the publishing department there. Yeah, he had really good relationships with all those women. I can't recall a great deal of interaction ever really with Michael. You know, it was more, yeah, dealing with the with the people that are involved in that, that smaller offshoot label. Coming back to the album itself. So the album, as I said, was released 27 years ago, back in 1994, on a single CD with mm-hmm. a, a selection of songs from the show. And you've just gone to release the new double CD. It's not the first re-release, but for the moment, I'll just pretend that this is the first re-release. So as I whole bunch of extra songs on this sort of really expanding on the whole gig and I think I might have said this to you like a few weeks ago we're having a conversation or maybe something I typed to you and said that it presents the show in a completely different light this whole new expanded edition so the original album is released in 1994 the song selection with songs like you know you will surely love again and changeling and rose tattoo and him it was, I think, probably the most up-tempo song on the album was It Takes a Lot to Laugh, It Takes a Train to Cry. It's covered the Dylan song. But otherwise, this is a very low-key, very melancholy album, if I could put it like that. Maybe it made Chris sound almost vulnerable in some ways, but mm. uh, which was a big change from what we got on Landlocked, which was often quite up-tempo and exciting with the whole band. And I'm not going to make any presumptions that this was because of the mood he was in post having to look after his ill parents. But this new version of the album, it almost sounds celebratory. You know, we've got a couple of Elvis covers and Tits and Feathers makes an appearance. And, you know, even just a handful of songs that this new one, it's more representative, I guess, of the Chris shows that I used to go see with him and Shane. At the time, whose idea was it to just release that as an album? I mean, I understand that Aurora was not going to release an interim album as a double album that probably would not be financial what they're interested in but whose idea was it to release this album as that and not include some of the more up-tempo mood songs to make it more representative of what the full Chris Wilson Shane O'Mara show would be like I just got your little baby I think that Chris did have input into the choice of songs on the original release and uh, he felt that the ones that were chosen were most representative of his kind of work at the time. As you say, there's only one, oh, there are two covers actually, This Guy's Crying is the other one from memory, and the other songs are his original ballads. 
the fact that they were his his compositions published by Mushroom would have had something to do with the choice of tunes put on the record initially from Mushroom's point of view. But yes, I, I do believe that Chris actually had the say on, on which songs were going to go on that album. When he reissued it himself back in, I think it was 2007, maybe it was later than that, but thereabouts, he had become aware that there was a lot more material and there was, you know, a whole other album's worth of stuff there. And so that was when he decided to kind of broaden out the character of the album and, and actually make it a bit more representative of what the show was really like, which was actually a far more dynamic affair. It was much rowdier and much more, you know, there was a lot of audience hooting and hollering. I was one of the hooters and hollerers. <laughs> and my brother, you can hear both of us quite clearly on the record and a lot of other people have said that they could hear themselves too, which is lovely. But when you use the word celebratory, it was definitely a celebration. The night was a celebration of Chris's return to live performance and in a venue that he really enjoyed performing in and always went out of its way to make its artists feel, you know, really special. Mm. Uh, Yeah, he hit the stage in great form. He was well rested and very well prepared and so were the other guys. It does have really big energetic peaks at the performance as well as those lower key, more intense moments that you talked about. Well, I mean, it's gone and taken what was already a brilliant album and just sort of gone and made it into a perfect album. And you, you mentioned the word dynamics there and it's not just the dynamics for the different range of songs but chris as a singer that was probably if he did nothing else he would be the king of dynamics because he knew the importance of drama there'd be those moments where he's projecting something really forcefully and then the next thing from a whisper to a scream i I think is the uh the expression and that was really a lot of what chris was about was dynamic Move if you think it's alright Move if you think it's alright A changeling is a vagabond Vagabond The change is like the That album, as we've, as I kind of said before, the other so there was you know, Chris and Shane who performed a lot, but there was also Jack Sarilat, local great jazz pianist, and the only other recording that I remember, I guess there's some stuff on the on uh, the Long Weekend, but I have like the CD single of the big one where has um, mm-hmm. him doing a few cover versions yep. with Dor Erez, who I think, did he run IDs? He did. Uh, yes, there you go. So another sort of continental connection. connection? <laughs> um, I went to see Chris quite a fair bit, but I don't ever remember seeing him play with a pianist in a live context. Did he just not feel that piano worked all the time for him? You know, it was really largely a matter of what he could afford. The biggest band that Chris had on the road was a band that really only played in Melbourne. He had a, like a, it was about a seven piece at one point. So that was the biggest band that he ever was able to actually gig with and sustain for any length of time. But it's really hard to pay more than sort of three or four other musicians of that caliber in a way that they deserve to be paid. And so he did do gigs with Draw and Draw used to run a little jazz kind of lounge at the at Lounge in the city. And, uh, and a few other venues, one in Armadale, I think, from memory. And so he did He did a bit of that stuff with Draw and sang those sort of standards with him and blue stuff. in your eyes, it doesn't shine no more. 
so wait on till tomorrow maybe then we'll see you know i don't know about tomorrow and uh yeah i think deb conway was involved in that uh zan aberatney i think was involved and yeah was a bit of a scene around the sort of secure kind of paran traps for a while there he really loved doing that uh withdraw and he loved playing with jex but you know jex was a busy guy and it was not always easy to get hold of him and so yeah i don't think it was this you know any deliberate sort of decision not to play with a piano player but i guess if he had to pick an accompanist it was going to be a guitarist you know because that was the more versatile instrument for him to uh, work with 100% understand it's always going to come down to economics the texture that jex introduces on his songs mm. on live at the continental or i can't remember who's the pianist on the long weekend it's jex yeah. oh it's jex yeah. again okay so think of a song like death may be your ticket after all that gospel sound in that and I'm thinking oh this is so good I, I yeah. wish there was a whole lot more of this that's not short selling Shane or Andrew Pendlebury or anyone who he played with but just my lord uh, yeah it's it's just wonderful to get that extra texture that he had there absolutely yeah when he, and he loved it when he and Diesel made short cool ones Diesel had a keyboard player uh, whose last name I can't remember his first name is Rob a fantastic player and he brought a heap of really great texture and beautiful sounds to that recording too so that was really fun Chris loved working with him I want to just make a brief sidestep away from the album for a moment but I think it's something I probably should have asked Chris myself like about three years ago a man who is hugely important in Chris's life was the great Max Crawdaddy who um, mm-hmm. anyone who's lived in Melbourne and listens to Triple R knows that he starts his show off well ever since that CD came out Born Under a Bad Sign it's been his signature song it's you almost identified as much with Max as you do with Chris that's how the show starts that is it Where did Max enter into Chris's life? Well, I don't know, to be honest. I think Max might have been going to see the Soul Twisters um, or Harem Scarum. He, Max and Chris knew each other longer than Chris and I knew each other, so... Max was on the scene when Chris and I started to um, get to know each other. Max, he was already very much part of Chris's life. And um, I don't think I ever sort of heard about how they met, but I'm assuming it's through gigs or possibly through Chris's friendship with Mick Geyer, who was uh, big in public radio at PBS at that time in the sort of early 80s and stuff. And Mick may have introduced Chris to Max. Anyway, at any at any rate, Mick Geyer was very significant in the sort of beginning of Chris's recording career because Mick had been trying to write a book for some time, a biography, I believe, or a history of Melbourne music or something like that. And 
was floundering along with it and not really getting anywhere. And Chris was trying to rev him up and and Chris said, I make you a bet that I can make an album before you finish your book. And then he went, oh, shit, how am I going to do it? You know, like, <laughs> and might have been taught, yeah. So I got to, word got to Maxie and he said, right, well, I'll, I'll put the brass up and you can go ahead, sort of thing. So, yeah, that's sort of how, how, that, how that aspect of their relationship began. I know that for a fact. And he continued to be like a huge supporter even when he was like on Mushroom and the like. And yeah, they were friends before anything. That's right. And Orgogo put out, I think, like it was Crawdaddy sort of through Orgogo. Like, yeah, Orgogo was the auspicing record sort of label, which was, again, just a, a very small operation run by Bruce Milne and his partner at the time, whose name I'm sorry, I don't recall. But yeah, when Chris got the offer from Mushroom, he thought about whether it was better for him to remain where he was and, and to keep working with the people who he already had such a great relationship with. But they urged him to move on and try to be a bigger fish, I guess, and yeah, so there was no issue with any of that, but it, look, it was a great way for him to get started anyway, definitely. Fingers crossed. I, I really do hope that those albums get a re-release at some stage oh, in the will. future. Oh, fantastic. Just talk about um, uh, hopefully uh, getting all three of those early Crownies records together to put out. Yeah, so two of them have been reissued, as you know, as show business. But that's out of print nowadays, isn't it? Well, I made it available digitally, but yeah, in terms of an actual concrete CD yeah, you can't get hold of it. And Babylon's been out of print for a really long time too. So, yeah, we'd like to get all three of those out again. I remember seeing those shows with the Landlocked Band and I remember just sort of being blown away. I think that was the first time I'd ever heard Babylon. Traffic crossed like a shiny beast The buildings stand like dragons Teeth not so long Down in Babylon a mob drawn to a flame She bought tickets to the new skin game She's gone Down to Babylon Hear their body What was that you said You're going down to Babylon I thought, what the hell? This isn't on the land locked Where can I get this? That was something that maybe people sort of didn't focus on. We know Chris the ballad writer or Chris the big blues belter, but Babylon was so funky. It just had this great groove. That was also another really strong part of what he did. Now, I guess that was also included as part of The Long Weekend. Yeah, it must have had a big love for funk and for groove. Oh, yeah. He, yeah, totally. Maybe this is just because I became a fan of Chris's from that landlocked period onwards, relatively close to the release of the Continental album. But it seemed to me that because of the beauty of its sound and being not so familiar with the non-landlocked songs on it at the time, that it almost seemed to me less of a live album and more just like a, an album album of new songs and then when I did go back and hear some of these other things and they really are different I feel that songs like Rose Tattoo had a, a greater intensity in its more stripped back version than the version that we get on Landlocked and Face in the Mirror and The Changeling sound different to me in their mm. Conti arrangements than they do in the Crown of Thorn versions I, yep. I mean I went and made the comparison before to Captain Beefheart which maybe doesn't necessarily apply to all these songs but I still feel like Don Van Vliet's ghost is hanging over these recordings in some way but these songs they sound a lot warmer goddamn anticipation as coquettish as a bride 
Goddamn your sense of isolation Your sense of hollowness When Shane and Chris first collaborated to do these songs, was there anything where Chris consciously said to him, this is what I want, I want something that sounds different, or it's just like, here, play the acoustic guitar, I know what you can do, just go for it. Did he consciously want something that was less angular, maybe from the Crown of Thorns recordings? You know, Shane's a very different sort of guitarist to Barry Palmer, and it was bound to have a different character. And, you know, because Chris and Shane had been gigging together for quite a while, they had a lot of the same sorts of unspoken cues and communications that happen with any good sideman that you work with for a long period of time. And Chris enjoyed that relationship with um, Shannon Bourne, of course, most sort of, um, you know, for the longest amount of time. Chris played with Shannon, but he also played with, as you said, Andrew Pendlebury and others. And uh, you develop a language and, and that sort of thing. And Shane maintains that there was, well, certainly, there was certainly no actual rehearsal. There was kind of a run through of the tunes just so that Jex had some faint idea. He would have insisted on that, I dare say. <laughs> Coming into it sort of completely blind as he was. But yes, very little rehearsal and very much the brief to bring whatever they wanted to bring to the show. Chris didn't sort of make arrangements or have any concrete idea, I don't think, of how, you know, he trusted both those guys to do the right thing. I mean, that must be big trust because it's one thing from to say, hey, let's play this Dylan song. Hey, let's play a couple of Elvis songs. But when mm. we're talking about Chris's own songwriting, to basically say, hey, I trust you, do what you want. Mm. That's, that's an incredibly brave decision. Yeah, but it had been proven over time that Shane was more than able for the task and he had in fact helped Chris with some of those compositions in terms of figuring out because Chris's guitar playing was at that point you know pretty rudimentary he didn't often know what chords he was playing he just kind of did what sounded good Shane was able to communicate then what Chris was doing to other musicians on his behalf and sort of help Chris to understand what he was actually playing as well Chris's melodic sense and ear and all that sort of stuff were easily the equal of anybody he ever worked with if not the better of anybody but he you know he he relied on Shane in those early days to help him sort of arrange the songs I think and um, translate them in a way I noticed in recent years that Chris did tend to do a lot more guitar work I mean in the early days you know, it was just him his voice and his harp and yep. you know but like I'd go down to see him at the Cherry Bar or the Rostown Hotel and yes. I'd see him a couple of times down there we'd give each other a wave and he'd just sort of be playing there on the guitar at what point did he start thinking I really want to give this some more practice and some more time just me and a guitar and my voice well I think it was I remember it sort of beginning when we were still living in Thornbury so around the turn of the millennium I would say around sort of 2000 2001 thereabouts just before we sort of moved down here and I remember very clearly saying Saying to him, you're perfectly able to play the guitar as a live performer. You're perfectly able to do it. He played all the time at home and he didn't think he was good enough to perform with the guitar on stage. And I just said, look at some of the knuckleheads around the joint playing the guitar. You can play better than them. Get out there and do it, you know. I sort of put my foot up his ass a bit to, to get him to do it. But I tried to reassure him basically that he was well able to do it. And he loved doing it so much. It brought a whole new thing to his Performing life. Yeah, he even took up the banjo briefly, you know, but he reckons. Oh, wow. Yeah, everybody left the room every time he pulled it out. <laughs> <laughs> you should have insisted that he learned Rainbow Connection. 
Thinking back to some of these songs, people in this country who love him speak about, you know, his big, big voice, his harmonica playing ability, and the word we haven't yet used, charisma, huge charisma. Mm. Uh, he knew how to sell a crowd. He told a great joke, or rather, he just was naturally funny. But I don't know that there's enough that's spoken about him as songwriter. I mean, this is something that I'm definitely pushing. Uh, you know, songs yeah. like Face in the Mirror and Alimony Blues. I mean, how does a guy who's happily married write a song like Alimony Blues? You took my happy home You left me on my own Like a dog without a bone Well, you, you gave up way too soon Now I'm in my empty room A needle and a spoon it seems like you know Chris managed to put his story writing hat in in his head any time he would write something. Not everything is autobiographical. Uh, no. I'm wanting to lead into your own stuff very very shortly. So I guess I start with: Were there any points where you either consciously wrote together, or did you bounce ideas off each other? Did you listen to each other? So now you can change that. How did you go from a songwriting perspective, the two of you? We did play things to each other. You know, I ran every new song I wrote past Chris for his opinion and feedback. He was a, a bit more circumspect, a bit more private, but he would occasionally play me something that he was working on. He wrote less and less after kind of around 2005, 2006. I know that he was working on things, but I was so happy when he began work on his last album because it was really the first bunch of new stuff that he'd felt able to kind of put out there. Like he'd, he'd written a few things, but a whole sort of collection of songs that he was happy enough with to have to actually go and record. I was really wrapped about that. So I was listening a lot to that stuff as it was going down. But all the songs on all the albums, I would always be listening to them and giving my feedback on, you know, even things like when uh, he was arranging albums, I would say, have you thought about maybe putting this song after that song and that sort of stuff, sequencing that sort of thing. And I consulted him heavily on all of my projects as well. I once heard him say in, I can't remember, in, in an interview or in a gig that he brought the blues and you brought the country to what you do. I mean, is that, how true is that? I mean, were you, did you introduce into a lot of country music? I did, yeah. It's a funny story about that, actually. Um, I lost my license for drunk driving when I was 25. I wasn't drunk. I was drunker than I should have been. And as part of my rehabilitation, <laughs> I had to go to court and the fee was more than I could manage. And he said, I will lend you the money to go to court and you can pay me back by buying me a country album from the shop where you work every week until the debt's paid. You have to choose it and that's how you'll pay me back. This was before we were married, obviously. And I said, <laughs> uh, okay, you, you've got a deal. And, you know, that's sort of how we worked it out. <laughs> he asked me to guide him in his selection of, of stuff and I, I enjoyed very much sort of playing him the things that I loved and teaching him, you know, about the things that I knew, I suppose. You know, he already had, quite a number of you know when I first went to his house I remember this he had albums in racks like a shop I had a lot of records but he had five times to six times more records than me <laughs> and they're all in racks and stuff and so you know it didn't take me long to sort of move over to those that section of the room and start sort of rifling through as you do 
I remember just sort of quietly going through. He let me just go off and do that by myself. I'm um, going through them and sort of flick, 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 got that, flick, flick, got that, got that, flick, 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 got that, flick, flick. Oh, wouldn't mind listening to that. Flick, 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 got that, got that, flick, flick, got that. You know, it was sort of a way of sort of realising that we had a lot in common. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, yeah, we both listened very widely to lots and lots, and his taste was broader than mine, and, and he taught me a great deal more than I taught him. But in terms of country, I had some authority, I would say. I remember one gig, I can't remember where it was, and he's, he's with a band, and he's saying, uh, I've got to play Mystery Train, otherwise my wife's going to kick my ass. Was, was that so? <laughs> But the, the first love letter that Chris ever wrote to me was about Elvis's recording of Blue Moon and his vocal and microphone technique. So that was like, he wrote me this little sort of poem slash essay about that. And that was actually the first kind of love letter that I ever received from Chris. And when I knew that he and I were going to be together forever, that here's a man takes Elvis as seriously as I do we are going to be very happy together and just Sun Records era right (laughs) oh no 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 but that was the area of focus at that time right okay yeah we moved through the whole gamut no we were marvelling together about the incredible ability of someone of that age to have that level of command of a very primitive recording setup and produce something that sounded like that Standing alone without a dream in my heart, without love of my own. Blue Moon sounds very scary. It's other worlds. It's, it's astounding. Yeah. And he was 19 when he recorded it. Coming back just briefly to the Conti album, the opening cut on Live the Continental is the heartbreakingly beautiful. I mean, I know it's a common expression, but it really is. You will surely love again. It's this wonderful song of hope, uh, yet it still acknowledges pain. In the last couple of weeks, your son, Fen, has gone and released a gorgeous, gorgeous song called Love Again. And I thought, that can't be a coincidence. And I read the article and he said, yeah, I wrote this for my mum. And it is sort of an answer to you will surely love again. Forgive me if I'm asking the, the bloody obvious, but how did you feel the first time you heard this? Or did he say, I'm going to write you a song one day, mum? Or how did you feel? Teardrops fall by my window Heaven sparks splitting arrows Will I ever love again? Will Well, I was sent a video of him and his band performing it by the keyboard player Jack Meredith's mum, Tiff, who's a very dear friend. 
and she'd been at the gig that where they played it for the first time and he announced it in that way and said here's a song that I've written for my mum and then launched into it and as you can imagine by the end of the song I was a complete fucking mess <laughs> and then when I heard the recording of it uh, the same thing happened I was a mess again I can listen to it now without crying but it's incredibly moving to me that Fen A would see so sort of deeply into my state of being and kind of react to it in this way. He says that he didn't mean to write the song for me, but once it emerged, he realised what he'd done and then proceeded to proclaim it as a song dedicated to me or about me or inspired by his understanding of the, you know what I've gone through and I'm going through and so yeah that to me is incredibly moving but I'm also aware that it's going to have resonance with many many people and is already being appreciated in that way you know and he wants people to share in it and understand that it's for anybody who's been through uh, loss and is wondering what the future holds for them you know the wisdom of the lyrics and the depth of the emotion in the performance are the things that really more so even than the fact that he's kind of seen fit to say you know this is a song that I've written for my mum. We're not related and yet I was almost in tears because as you say this is a song anyone can relate to having had that loss and you're questioning your future and I can just imagine if Chris is overlooking us on the planet he'd probably be saying to Finn oh you big fucking sook come give us a hug or something or words to that effect. Is that going to get a physical disc release? I mean I know he released an album last year. He actually released an album at the end of sort of start of 2020 Oh, end of he finished recording it. I think at the end of 2019. I think it came out. I'll have trouble remembering. No, I think November 2019 was when the album came out. So that was Ghost Heroin. That was his first mm. full-length album. He'd had an EP out prior to that in 2016, which was also lovely. But this uh, Ghost Heroin was a more sort of fully produced sort of recording. So that came out on CD. This album, I think, once it's done, it, like the single itself is only going to be a digital release at this point. But he will release an album hopefully by the end of this year. And I should think that will probably come out on vinyl and digital which just seems to be the way that the kids are doing it so that's super cool but yeah we're sort of all kind of aiming our, our, our collective efforts towards making that happen because it's it's an expensive enterprise to make a recording but I think they're off to a great start with the single it's absolutely magnificently recorded it sounds awesome so to continue in that vein I think will be a great thing as I said I want to have another discussion sometime with both the boys because you know with <laughs> tiny giants and ghost heroin and there's so much that they're doing they're incredibly mm. prolific but i guess one thing that i do have to ask and that's because this involves you is last year during lockdown what made my saturday evenings and i'm sure a lot of other people's saturday evenings was the three of you and sometimes you'd rope in someone else you'd be yeah. playing these live streamed shows from your house and I can't even remember the names that you went for yourself but they're all Tex-Mex related names from El Rancho Clifto uh, yeah. and doing a Tex-Mex version of eight days a week and you know whatever else you could come up with they just made me so happy uno dos tres uno dos tres
you're obviously very, very close with the boys, but whose idea was that, hey, why don't we just do this on a Saturday night? Well, it started around about a year ago, towards the end of April, actually, as a response to the loss of one of the students at the high school where I teach to suicide. He was a kid in year 11, a beautiful kid who had been struggling with his mental health for a while and was not coping well with lockdown and just decided to check out. And so we, Georgie and I, were here together one night and we were just mucking around, I think, with that song, maybe just for fun, the pair of us. And I said, I tell you what, let's record it. Let's put it out there and and you know we'll see if we can cheer up some people you know because i was aware that there was a very sorrowful group of kids and also of course adults the teachers that i work with and everybody i said maybe we can just raise the spirits of some people doing something like this so we plumped on the cowboy hat and um had a crack and it's bumpy as all hell you know but that's fine and then did another one and then i think ben was home and that was uh his inaugural performance was el paso which is one of the most difficult songs to remember member of all time so you know when we did it we always I'd say all right let's have a go at this one or one of the boys and suggest something we'd work on it for maybe an hour one of us would generally know it better than the other two um so that was always helpful we'd get lyrics and work out what key and just figure out what instruments everyone was going to play and then run it a few times and then go right bang let's do it and we'd maybe have one or two cracks at it on the video and the idea was always that it be uh, imperfect but good enough <laughs> <laughs> and and what people have really said that they've liked about it is how real and unaffected it is a lot of the stuff that I watched over the last year was a bit careful and I know that I fell into that trap myself when I did some other stuff but with the boys and our various guests the idea was never to be too hung up on getting it absolutely right and if somebody laughed or made a mistake that was actually better but I think all the performances are actually great because you can hear the sort of way that we're actually improving even in the two or three minutes of the song. And then we sort of have this really great ending and everyone goes, oh, yeah. And then up, up it goes onto the platforms and everything. And then people would immediately just start writing back, oh, it's so great to see you guys laughing. It's so good to see you looking happy. And we'd always have such a good time doing it. And so people saw that we were being ourselves and that they were getting a real sense of, you know, one aspect of our characters that was undaunted by what was going on, we could still have fun doing that and got a lot of lovely feedback from a lot of people over it. A lot of people just saying, this makes me feel good. And that was like, well, job done. Well, it made me feel very good. I'm awesome. glad, I'm thrilled to hear that other people felt the same way. And we said, look, we did actually do a couple of live shows too, you know, and I don't rule out the possibility of us doing another one. We have been asked by various people to come and play and I'm aware of course that I can't claim too much of the boys time at this point because Polly Man's doing gigs, George's in the other band Bones and Jones is doing gigs, fans doing gigs and they're busy you know and they've got projects and, and lives in Melbourne but while we were all sort of bunged up down here it was very easy just to go oh we've been asked to go and perform somewhere we'll just brush our set up and we had like an hour's worth of material by the end of the year yeah we, we worked out that we would do that show and I remember playing at the 
the Barwon Club in Geelong and saying to the audience that we had, I asked them firstly, had anybody, any of them seen the videos? A few people put their hands up and I said, oh, that's great. So you know it's a fucking schmuzzle, right? <laughs> 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 and there were, you know, but we did, we did. It, I thought a really great show, a lot of fun, and we we got home. We we're on the way home, and I said, "It's so lovely, isn't it, that we can do this in such a relaxed way?" And people just love the fact it doesn't have to be perfect. It's just like the vibe is so good, and everybody just has such a nice time. Yeah, and they, the song choices were really diverse, so you know, you get a bit of everything, and it was really good fun. It was a lovely thing to do with them. So you've been pretty busy over the years. I mean, besides, well, we spoke at the start about your teaching as well, but you've been busy with a whole range of groups and probably a bunch that I don't even know about, but the big ones were you know, bands like Git, uh, mm-hmm. The Junes, The Cartridge Family. And the first album of yours, however, that I bought, which was only a few years ago, was the one that went under the name of Sarah Carroll and The Left Wing, which mm-hmm. also included George your son playing, you know, quite a few instruments as well on that. And i got to say that the songwriting really, really attracted me as well as the performances, obviously. It sounded like I was listening to a bunch of great short stories that just happened to be accompanied by beautiful melodies. The album has, you know, great observations of life, you know, both joyous and sad, which is what life is about. There's, you know, songs of love and there's songs of motherly advice. You, I, I can't think of an album that's got two songs of advice you have one called lived your life twice which is i'm guessing your advice to your boys But I'll tell you about that. How it began. <laughs> I was working for the push, doing songwriting, mentoring with young people. I had this session with a young guy who was coming out of potential career as a um, lead singer in musicals. He was involved in a production of Happy Days at the time as the Bond, and very good-looking young guy, really sweet, and wanted to become the next Keith Urban. And I said, "Okay, well, show us what you got songs." And he said he had like half a verse. You know, we worked and worked and worked, and we finally got one. And I realised just how little he knew. He was a walking, talking, functioning young person, but he knew so little. And it transpired that he was 24 at the time and I was 48. And I just thought, man, I'm like, I'm twice your age, you know, and I just sort of started to consider about all the stuff that I'd lived and all the stuff that I'd done and learned that he had absolutely no idea about. And and that's where the idea for the song came from. I was exactly twice his age and I just thought, right, well, I'm going to just tell you a few things. The other song that you give of advice is Small Courtesy, which you get the Mm -hmm. audience to sing along with. And I've got to say, it's sort of brought me in mind of the Harry Nilsson song, I'd Rather Be Dead, but only because of the fact that it's a song that he sings with a group of people around him, not in any mm-hmm. other not in any other regard, but still both quite fun in their way. Yeah. I gotta ask you, how pissed off must you have been as a <laughs> musician in a live context to write a song like that? Don't go for a smoke. In the middle of my song, if you want to stay on my good side, don't stare at your phone or talk ever louder while I'm sharing the secrets I hide. 
I know it's your night and you can do what you like But sometimes the world seems unkind And the small courtesy that you show to me Helps me feel I'm not wasting my time <laughs> Were you pissed off? Yeah, I was. Actually, it was. it's funny you should say this, and I have said this in public before, so I know that Ben won't mind, but it was actually Ben and his mates who provided the inspiration. Oh, no. uh, because they, yeah, they did actually go out for a smoke in the middle of my song, and they weren't looking at their phones, though. Other people have done that. But, yeah, I just thought, okay, how can I convey this message in the most lighthearted and loving way possible? Yeah. So that's... Now that song came about. There's another song that you've written about, which I'm guessing has you pissed off, but has done in a light-hearted way. And this was mm. um, part of an EP that you did with uh, Shannon Bourne last year. The EP was Medicine, and I want to talk a little bit about that EP in general. But the outlier from that EP seems to be the last song, Zero Fucks Given. And that mm. talks about your frustration with the music industry. I understand what your frustrations are, but should I feel guilty for laughing all the way through or is it mission no. accomplished? Please, please laugh. <laughs> <laughs> the song, the, the refrain of the song is true. It's it's exactly how I have come to feel about the stuff that I sing about in the, in the song. So each verse kind of describes a state of being that is difficult, you know, for one reason or another. And and then the refrain is zero fucks given because I've decided or I've just come to this place in my life for various reasons, largely, you know, the trauma of the last few years that the things uh, I often say when I'm introducing the song, this song is really about just knowing what's worth caring about and what isn't. And so, like, I did some gigs with Neil Murray a couple of weeks ago and he's a big fan of this song. His favourite line is writing lots of letters, making phone calls. This is about, you know, the music industry verse, uh, writing lots of letters, making phone calls, but they want somebody younger or less fucking tall. You know. <laughs> 25 years filling up the page Hoping to ascend the international stage Writing lots of letters Making phone calls But they want somebody younger or less fucking tall Seems a zero Because it's like, what possible reason could they have for knocking me back except that I'm too tall? I can't think of anything else, you know. And he thinks that is hilarious, you know. So we've, we've Is Neil going to cover it? Uh, well, I don't know. Tim Rogers said he wanted to cover it. So oh, we'll see. perfect. We <laughs> can probably relate to it, you know. And Neil certainly does. And it struck a, it's chimed with a lot of musicians, I know. And I, I like to sort of put it together with another song called I Just Play In Here For Drinks, which was written by Gary Young, which I've been covering for years and years and years. Gary says it's actually my song now, not his. So that's cool. But that's like another sort of musician's anthem. So I often perform the two. And that small courtesy also fits in with that little mindset, you know, sort of striking a blow for the um, musician. I saw medicine as something of a catharsis for you, I, I imagine. I mean, like there's both songs of pain, but the song which attracted me the most was 
Our Wedding Day, um, mm-hmm. which I'm 100% sure that that's autobiographical. I mean, did you mm-hmm. set out to do that? And for that matter, with Star Parade, is a lot of the stuff on Star Parade autobiographical? Am I, am I reading wrongly here? No, not at all. A lot more so. When I started writing songs and performing them, a lot of the songs I wrote were, you know, you talked before about, I'm sorry, not you, somebody else I was listening to on the radio, sorry, was talking about the whole sort of autobiographical slash versus made up song uh, things. The difference between writing from experience and completely making something up, but like taking perhaps somebody else's story and then going in a completely different direction. So I did a lot of that early on. I made up a lot of songs about adultery, for instance, which is not something I've ever done, but I found the subject fascinating and I thought, what would it be like to be actually in that situation? I know a few other writers who have done it. Robbie Fox is a notable songwriter who writes beautifully about adultery and yet is a very happily straight married man. You know, I don't think you need to have experienced everything to be able to write about it. I think you need to use your imagination, you know. But I've definitely also written from my own experience all along as well and, and tried to sort of grapple with various things of, um, I don't know, just trying to express them or work them out or get a message across a lot of the songs on star parade yeah mostly are drawn from life and the opening song is uh, one that i wrote for my late father you fought for me you went to court for me exposed your broken heart for all the world to see near drank yourself to death Saved by a loving hand And the boxes of photographs Sunsets over sand well, it was sparked uh, as our wedding day was actually by a photograph. I think this happens a lot with people. I was looking through old photos and there's this really great one of my father and pushing me along the esplanade in a pram. And I would have been, you know, 18 months old or something, just this little blonde head Muppet, you know, in the pram. And he's running to a mate and they've, they've stopped for a chat on the esplanade. And Ron's got no shirt on and he's looking like, you know, Tony Curtis or Ronald Coleman or one of those sort of guys. Very stylish sort of a bloke and very proudly wheeling me along and I looked at the photograph and just the setting it just uh, sort of sparked a whole lot of memories and also I decided that I wanted to try to tell his story a bit because when he and my mother um, separated and my mother began her relationship with our stepfather my father was sidelined fairly comprehensively and I think that happens Although he did maintain a presence in our lives and stuff, I never really, you know, never lived with him again. I never, never really, our relationship was very, very different from that point on. And so there were lots of things about him that I didn't know and I learned later. And so I wanted to try to tell his story as a father in the song and also let him know, even though he's no longer with us in his body, I feel he's around somewhere, that I wanted to let him know that I understand his position, like his point of view and the whole thing, that he wasn't the bad guy and that it was just how life goes. And my mother was not an easy woman. (laughs) 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 And she had had very strong ideas about things and so it was probably inevitable that their relationship wasn't going to last but that doesn't mean that you know he wasn't a good father you know I think he was it's a song that's beautifully descriptive sounds like how much you got from 
that photo. Yeah. I love the fact when songwriters, they, I mean, they don't make it so obvious. I mean, I, I couldn't write a song to save my life. But what I do like when I listen to a song or when I listen to a lyric, the song is about your father and it's a song about the things that upset him or could have hurt him and all that. But you make the focus in the title, St Kilda Skyline. You compare it to this iconic visual aspect of Melbourne. Yeah, it was my first view of the world as a tiny little person, you know, and he brought that to me, like he put me there and gave me that home. I want to talk about one more song from the album because the song After the Ride is uh, a song that could be written in times of any political turmoil Correct. Uh, in, in history, <laughs> but after the events of recent weeks with what's happening in the government and uh, stories of sexual harassment and the like and uh, the big rallies that have taken place in the last couple of weeks with uh, the Women of Justice March, it just seems like I want to say it's more relevant than ever, but truth is there could be some other political shitstorm that takes place next week and it'll be relevant all over again. Was there anything that you were reacting to in particular at the time or was it just, I've just had enough with these people who are doing things supposedly in my name, but they're not. What provoked that? I feel as well walking side to side I wrote it quite a long time ago, and it was about the whole Kevin Rudd, Julia Gillard, Kevin Rudd bizzo, and the subsequent erosion of faith in the political system, which I think was um, always a little shaky anyway, but I've been around long enough to remember when things were a lot more black and white in terms of people's political, I suppose, their allegiances and their their belief in the power of the of the system or their belief in the sort of the integrity of the system. Yep. And I think what happened around that time in terms of the way it sort of fractured the community and, be, and began to show the sort of the deep cracks that exist here as well as in the US and other places where we're noticing those terrible, irrevocable kind of divisions in society. Australian society such as it is in its infancy that it is, it's it's such a, an unformed and kind of it's a, we're, we're toddlers in terms of the way that we've completely failed to integrate the actual existing society that was here when we came here and all that sort of stuff. There's so much work to be done to try and make our society be Australian mm. instead of some import from overseas, which it is at the moment still and sort of totters along in that way. This is what I believe. I think that, you know, we've got so much work to do in that regard. But what I was noticing at the, at the time that I wrote the song was basically just that people were beginning to look at each other askance in a way that I had never noticed before and really question very deeply what actually is going on 
with the powers that be, with the high ups, mm. and what does it mean for us? What does it mean for the average person? Mm. So yeah, as you say, like I keep hearing about something, you know, over here or overseas, and just going, oh, there's the song again, mm. you know. So I feel proud that I've achieved that, that I have written something that is actually expressive of an ongoing. I never prepared, never pretended that it was going to answer any questions, and I've said this when I introduced the song. This is here's a song of questions. Like, I have no answers, mm. but I want to keep the questions going and and keep the conversation alive i think these are important questions that we need to keep asking you know i think it's great that a work of art can continue to ask questions because as we'd all say anyone who pretends that they do have an answer to some great profound question is full of Mm -hmm. shit the fact that you can so succinctly ask these questions and have it relevant to any political situation that we're facing in the country and it seems like it's just one after the other and it's not just in this country it's around the world but we'll wake up tomorrow morning to headlines in the age and your song will be relevant. And that, to me, is a huge measure of, of success. Actually, just as, as an aside, did I, I know that Chris had certainly had a lot of political opinions and maybe we'll talk off air about what he had to say about Jeff Kennett. <laughs> uh, I can't recall, did he ever write anything? I mean, maybe not released, but did he ever write anything that was overtly political? Oh, yeah. He wrote heaps of political songs. Yeah, absolutely. He had fantastic song on The Long Weekend called People Like Me, which is one of my favourites. He's got, um, he had a great song on an album called Flying Fish called I Believe the Unions Will Rise Again One Day, which is worthy of totally Woody Guthrie-esque, fantastic, simple song about what's needed. Uh, um, Hand Becomes Fist Becomes Hammer, also from The Long Weekend, is of one of the best songs about the true history of this country that I've ever heard. And he always wrote about the downtrodden. You know, there's a song called Well, Tits and Feathers, is, for example, you brought that up before. That's about a dancer who is forced to come compromise her standards and things to make a living and she's she's doing what she has to do sort of thing you know it's a bit like oh there's a few songs that kind of have that theme and yeah lots of songs over over the time that just basically tells the tell the stories of the downtrodden and the forgotten you know the people that that may not be noticed and and um, whose stories you might not have ever considered or from an angle that you may not have ever considered them to give those people dignity and to give them expression to give their stories expression so to me those are political songs as well right the strongest political work that he did was his on his last album and i actually played a song from that album on the radio today which is a song called wage justice for the working poor wage justice for the working poor wage justice for the working poor where's justice for the working poor wage justice for the working poor Give me one, give me two, give me three, give me four. Which is just absolutely scathing. It's an incredibly angry piece of work and it is a direct response, a spoken word piece, which is a direct response to the growing inequality in Australia and around the world of people who work and work and work and work and work and still can't pay the bills because they are being ripped up. And so while the rich get richer, the poor get poorer, all that, other songs on the album have the same message, but that track in particular is just 
just it's a call to arms and it's it's truly magnificent i gotta come back to that album i don't think i've actually sort of like listened to it much since the first couple of months that it originally got released but i remember yeah. sort of thinking this is very very different heavily percussive yeah uh, it was just i thinking hang on did i get a chris wilson album is this is this a chris wilson very different to anything i've heard him do yeah. before but therein lies another thing that made him so appealing was the fact mm. that he was always willing to do something different there's i don't think there's any two albums that sound quite the same i mean there's the no. you mentioned before the harem scarum stuff that evolved into crown of thorns and then that evolved into the chris wilson landlocked band and the long weekend and i don't mean this in a bad way it's just it's a more polished sounding album than say yeah, landlocked which is a lot a lot rawer and then there's the you know the spider-man stuff and everything sounds completely different i mean in a way i think king for a day is this country album as well yeah, that, that's yeah, absolutely mm. just to sort of wrap this up what's happening with uh you over the next few months i mean we're now sort of, you know, we're out and allowed to go back out and see gigs and do gigs, and that must be, you know, a huge relief to you. So, what's happening with you? You've got a plans for a new recording, gigs planned, interstate. What's happening? Yeah, well, um, I'm going to Burke for Easter. Going to Burke for one show at Easter. Wow, okay. Yep, and that's going to be fantastic. That'll be with Neil Murray and a couple of other lovely artists. And I've got quite a few gigs coming up with my band The Cartridge Family which mm-hmm. is comedy country uh, outfit not yep. all comedy but a, you know fairly strong element thereof of course that features uh, Rusty from Scare Weird Little Guys doesn't it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yep yeah, uh, Rusty's a songwriter yeah he and I have collaborated on a couple of things lately which has been a lot of fun and there's a, a co-write actually that uh, Rusty Susanna Espy who's in the band and I did a few years ago now which made it onto our last album which is a fantastic song called Small Town Gay Bar which was uh, um, the result of a very late night sitting up around the kitchen table in some motel somewhere. We are all very pleased with ourselves when we came up with that one. And, yes, recording, I am actually, I've got, I reckon, half a dozen songs I'd be happy to record pretty soon. So I'll keep working and maybe I've got a, an idea for somebody I'd like to approach about recording next album. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to make a move on that person shortly and, and sort of start a conversation about that. That'll be good, yeah. As I was saying to somebody, last year was really doing the, the reissue for the Live at the Continental album was a very big project and it took I reckon five months or so with a lot of work being done by a lot of people but particularly by the people involved in the sort of remastering and the artwork and so I oversaw a good deal of that and was very heavily involved in the sort of fine-tuning and yeah, just pulling together the, the overseeing the project, I suppose. I was asked to do that and I was willing to do it, but it was very, very hard and very challenging at times. I felt almost too much. But as I said to somebody yesterday about it, there was no way that I wasn't going to do it because it's Chris's legacy that I need to ensure is preserved and perpetuated for our kids and everybody else who who wants it to be in the world and I want it to be done as well as it can possibly be done and I'm going to be the person who cares the most about that. I need to be, you know, I need to have the guts to sort of do it. You've gone and stated that it was a difficult fight 
five months from presumably is all the legals that you had to do and probably dealing with cheer squad, which I think is that run by Wally Captain. Yes. Right. Yeah. So I'm sure that there's a lot of that side of it and making sure that the artwork is great and all that sort of thing. But just on a personal level with the remastering, hearing Chris's voice every day, all day, every day. How difficult was that for you? And tell me to piss off if I'm getting too personal on that. No, it's important that people understand that, and I'm sure that most people would have some understanding, but there were days that I could do it and there were days that I couldn't do it. And I still can't listen to the album. I know that it's been done beautifully and because I was finding that aspect of things so difficult once we'd chosen the songs and I'd made sure that the right versions and all that sort of stuff and, and we did agreed on the order and tried to maintain the original, the integrity of the original release but also add the things that needed to be added in the right way. Once those decisions had been made, I was not able to listen then at all and so I had to then give that job to a trusted friend who I knew would make the right call on my behalf that happened and that that work was done by the cheer squad guys and by the friend who we chose to help with that who's a, a very very beautiful person and lovely engineer that Chris who Chris made his last album with Colin Wynn so Colin took that job on and, and was very helpful there so it's not I have to be careful how much time I spend looking at photographs watching videos listening to music I can't do too much of it but I'm very very happy and proud to curate the presence and collect and share the music and enable others to partake and to have in their hands once again and and also for the first time as a, as has happened on many occasions with this reissue a lot of people are hearing this music for the first time i'm really happy that like a new generation is hearing it they're getting it on their favorite format you know so a lot of young people are buying the record and it's been heard overseas i've been able to share it with some friends in america and so forth for the first time and so that makes me really happy so it's been a as you would say, a bittersweet experience. Very, very proud of the success of the reissue and really grateful to the Cheer Squad guys for taking it on and proud of the work that I've done and grateful for the you know opportunity to have the input because they might well have decided to just go, no, nah, we'll, we've got this, we'll take care of it. And I might have been excluded or, or not made to feel as welcome as I have been, but I was consulted at every turn and, and my opinion sought and, and respected. And I really appreciate that. So, yeah, it's been beautiful and very painful, but ultimately really positive and excellent outcome. Well, on behalf of all the people who are fans of the Wilson Carroll musical dynasty, I want to say a huge thanks for all that you do. A huge thanks for bringing this back out into the world. I don't know if it's out of place for me to say, but I prefer this front cover to the original front cover, but that's just me. Oh, totally. And let's mention at this point that that photograph was taken by the great Pierre Baroni, who very sadly passed away after a long illness recently. I loved working with Pierre, and although we never actually physically met, we spoke many times via email, and his 
generosity was just astounding and he's provided me with a lot of really beautiful photographs and he said that he was he went out of his way to make sure that I got them and for me to keep you know and share with the boys and and others and I was so glad that we were able to use that that beautiful photograph of his on the front cover and that he was able to see that before he uh, passed away I'm really really happy that so yeah I'm glad to say a big loss to the uh, PBS and Melbourne musical community Pia Barani a fantastic show once again anyway thank you so much Sarah I've really really enjoyed having this conversation uh, spreading the word not for the first time about my love of Chris my now my love of your own work as well I'm a big Harmony fan so hearing that June's stuff uh, it, it did my heart and my ears good um, all I can say is thank you so much for your time tonight really appreciate it it's a great pleasure and, and a great honour as well thank you love thank you so much okay we'll be back in just a moment to talk about what's happening in next month's episode of Love That Up. We'll be back in a moment. My love is like a rose tattoo Never fading and eternal I'm pledging all my love to you Cause I love you Once again, my huge thanks to Sarah Carroll for her generosity of time and thoughts and talking to us about Live at the Continental, Star Parade and a whole bunch of other music and some political talk in there. How often does that happen on this podcast? Hmm. Sarah will be back on the show sometime later on this year. We'll be talking about the 45th anniversary of a great Australian record, which is also associated with a great Australian film, but more about that when the time approaches. So what do we got planned for next month? Thank you for asking. Next month on the show, I'll be having Australian biographer Jeff Apter. Now, he's gone and written a ton of books, mostly music biographies, not all, but amongst the music biographies that he has written, there have been ones on Shell Strawn of Skyhooks, uh, Malcolm Young of ACDC, George Young of the Easy Beats, Johnny O'Keefe and the Finn Brothers. And his latest biography covers all-round entertainer, rock singer, actor, composer, John English. Most people will recall that John English got his start playing Judas in Jesus Christ Superstar back in the early 70s. But this book reveals, in fact, that he was playing with the band Sebastian Hardy even before that in the traps around Sydney. But Judas was how he made his name, how he became known to all of Australia. In fact, I think Tim Rice is on record as saying that John English was the definitive Judas out of any production. Now, I always knew that John English was a performer who always kept busy, but until I read this excellent biography from Jeff Apter, I had no idea just how busy. The name of the book is called Behind Dark Eyes, and it's just been released in the last week or two. So that's something that you can track down through your local bookstore or on the internet. I think Jeff Apter 
chapter.com.au. But we'll talk about that a lot more next month. So we'll go behind the scenes, talk about how we came to write the book, uh, talk about certain aspects of John English's life, and just talk about our favorite John English songs and all the highs and the lows of his career. That'll be really fascinating conversation. So once again, thanks very much to all of you for listening. Thanks very much as well to the Pantheon podcast people for allowing me to do a show on their network. And also many thanks to AKG for the lovely Lyra microphone and set of headphones. Hopefully it's making this sound great, regardless of what you think about the content. Uh, until next month, please look after yourselves, listen to a whole lot of great music, watch some great films, read some great books, and just generally be nice to each other. And if you can get a vaccine jab, all the better to you. Go get it. Look after yourselves. Cheers. I barely heard you when it was your turn to say. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.